I got to have these incredible experiences of working with not only astronauts, but cosmonauts. And I, I got to work with, uh, you know, not only the, the American Space Agency, NASA, but with the Canadians and the Europeans and the Japanese and the Soviets and then the Russians. And, and so I had this fantastic experience and it was um, candidly not very high paying. <laughs> But it was extremely... I'm Nimi. And I'm Ritu. From Adventurize, this is Venturing Beyond. A podcast where we delve into the career stories of ambitious individuals. Hello and welcome to Venturing Beyond. Today we have with us Julianne Zimmerman, the Managing Director of Reinventure Capital, who is passionate about putting technology and capital to work for the greater good. Reinventure Capital is a high-impact, high-return venture practice investing exclusively in U.S. companies led by BIPOC and all women founders. Julianne created and teaches a course called Innovative Social Enterprises in Tufts University. She's also taken on roles as a trusted mentor, co-founder, board member, advisor, consultant along her journey. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing directly from her about her valued experience. So, without further ado, welcome Jillian. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited for our conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to join you. And before we begin, how are you? Please introduce yourself briefly. I'd love to hear about what you've been working on, the projects or interests or hobbies. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm in Boston uh, presently, or right, actually right now, I'm just outside Boston and um, and we are well here. I'm I'm primarily uh, still going to be working from home, uh, like I think many people for the next few months at least. But we are really busy with reinventure. Um, as you mentioned, I teach at Tufts, and and the term ended uh, in late May. So um, that is is not part of my current activity slate at the moment. But reinventure is very busy. We are actively investing, as you mentioned, and we have uh, three companies in our our current portfolio. We have two active deals on the table and another one that is close to um, being ready to uh, pursue. And then we have a, a huge amount of active deal flow behind that. At the same time, we are still concluding our fundraise for the, the fund. So, so we have three concurrent uh, fields of endeavor right now with reinventure. So that's quite busy. Um, which as you can imagine, leaves not very much time for hobbies, but I'm very fortunate to have uh, two beautiful dogs who keep me somewhat grounded. And, and I'm a, a very avid reader. So I'm always reading and listening to at least two or three books at a time. What kind of dogs do you have? We have two Akitas. Uh, it's a Japanese breed. They're very large, very furry dogs, and they're fantastic companions. Brilliant. They're very content to be uh, just close to us all the time. I get to walk them every morning, which gives me a little bit of fresh air and a little bit of quiet. 
and an opportunity to notice what's happening in the world outside my computer. You did mention books and you like listening to them as well. Do you have any you found super interesting? I read a lot for work um, and, and my reading for work, as you can imagine, is, is very much along the lines of um, racial and social and gender equity and particularly in the world of finance. So, um, for example, I, I strongly recommend Edgar Villanueva's Decolonizing Wealth. But the, the reading I mentioned before is really recreational reading to give me a break and to give my mind uh, a different way of um, engaging. And so I listen to and, and read a lot of speculative and I particularly like um, literary fiction. So I love Eastern European and, and Japanese um, fiction. I, I love, for example, um, I love uh, Nnedi Okorafor. Um, I love uh, Anne Leckie. I love uh, Martha Wells. Um, there, are, there are so many fantastic writers. Uh, it's, it's a, it, it really is a joy to give my, my mind some, some refreshment. I took um, environmental studies subject and there was a lot of reading and I'm very much interested in the subject so I love reading about it but it's a little depressing. It's, it's very heavy, it's very heavy work, it's important um, and also I, I was just having this, this conversation with a, a colleague the other day, it's, it's that much more important if you are undertaking such really grave work to make time, to make opportunities in your day to experience joy. It's important for all of us to experience joy, but it's especially important when you are taking on these, these really big challenges to be intentional about recognizing the need for joy and finding it and savoring it and valuing it as an important part of your life. And it kind of re-emphasizes why it's so Absolutely, and, and to help you stay human, right? You're still a person. You're not just someone who's doing work, yeah, right? that's very and, true. <laughs> and, and it's really important to remember that, especially when, as you say, uh, you know, it's, it's very tempting to, to be sucked into working more or less nonstop. That's not a healthy thing. Yeah, truly. You mentioned in your bio, and I read about um, how you're passionate about, would you mind explaining about that? Yeah, I'm happy to. It took me several years into my career to be able to formulate that statement. It was always part of my motivation but, but it took me a while to, to figure out how to articulate it. I grew up in a fairly rural part of Pennsylvania, which is in the mid-Atlantic part of the United States. Um, it's a part of the country that is, well, when I was a child at least, it was mostly farms and woods. And, and I grew up with a, a real appreciation of the outdoor world and, and also somehow or another, I got it into my head as a child that I wanted to be an astronaut. So when I was 16, I went to MIT to 
um, study aeronautical engineering because I, I thought that was how you became an astronaut or it was one of the ways I thought you could become an astronaut. And, um, and, and that was very much about throwing myself into this career path that I thought was one of the most extraordinary ways to advance human knowledge. And, and, and I was very naive at 16, but, but nevertheless, it wasn't the worst idea. <laughs> and in fact, um, I, I was also a very avid reader from a very young age and I, I double majored in literature. And one of the, um, one of the things that, that I learned very early on from that experience was that for a lot of people, including my academic advisor, that made no sense whatsoever. And, um, and I'm so glad that I did it because it, it gave me not only, again, that rounding experience of, of being human, not just being you know, focused on my engineering studies, but it also has given me different ways to think about problems as I've gone through the various incarnations of my career. So back to our story, um, I, I had a fantastic first career working in, in manned spaceflight exploration or human spaceflight exploration. It was really a wonderful adventure. Um, I got to work with scientists all over the world. I worked in a really tiny company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was employee number seven, and this is in the 1980s when that was not a normal thing to do. And again, many people thought that was a very strange choice. The aerospace industry is, uh, as everyone said at the time, uh, an industry that's dominated by giants. And why on earth would you go to this tiny little company? But, but I had a fantastic experience and my team and I were able to do things that, that would never have been possible at large corporations. And in fact, many people told us were flatly impossible. And so I had this fantastic experience. I, I really did get to be involved in advancing scientific research, but I got, to, um, I got to have these incredible experiences of working with not only astronauts, but cosmonauts. And I, I got to work with uh, not only the, the American Space Agency, NASA, but with the Canadians and the Europeans and the Japanese and the Soviets and then the Russians. And, and so I had this fantastic experience and it was um, candidly not very high paying, <laughs> but it was extremely rewarding because I really felt that the work that I was doing had intrinsic value. And I did get to be a finalist twice in the NASA astronaut selection process. And ultimately I was not selected so it was both a, a signal um, highlight of my career and also a heartbreak all at the same time. <laughs> and um, and it, it gave me a, an opportunity to think about what else would I care about as much? Did I wanna stay in that field? Did I wanna continue doing that work or did I wanna find other ways to do work that I felt was equally intrinsically valuable. And, and 
And I remembered that again, growing up, I had very much valued my experience of the outdoor world. And, and I was also a child at the beginning of the Earth Day movement. So conservation was very much part of my kind of um, consciousness or my, my awareness from a very young age. And so I started looking around for opportunities to bring my engineering skills to bear in the conservation realm. And what I discovered in the early 2000s is that there really wasn't a lot of technology development or innovation being done to prevent or, or reduce or, or mitigate the creation of effluents and other pollutants, um, you know, persistent um, compounds as wastes into the environment. There was mostly work being done on remediation and cleanup, so after the fact. And so um, I thought that was peculiar. And so I ended up um, co-founding a company with a colleague that was an emissions to biofuels company. It was one of the first. And again, we were told by many people that this was not a thing. Um, many, many people told us, for example, no one in their right mind will ever invest in cleanup. And, and fortunately, those people turned out to be wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, but again, I found that I was, I was really just profoundly motivated by this, this opportunity to, again, bring my skills to bear, to do work that I felt was intrinsically valuable. If we could be successful in reprocessing even a fraction of smokestack emissions into co-fireable biofuels, that was going to have a meaningful environmental impact. And, and as you are aware, and as I'm sure many listeners are aware, those environmental impacts have social and human health impacts as well. So it's, it's not just one thing, but it's those impacts expand outward. So it was sometime into that experience of building that company and, and building and, and putting into the field the first ever prototype to, to do that in a working power plant. Um, and, and doing the work of talking with people in the industry about why this was, uh, why this was something that was going to be valuable for them, for their operations, for their power plants, for their manufacturing, not just as a feel good, but, but as a, a valuable, um, a valuable strategic initiative for their, their operation. In those conversations was when I first started to articulate this idea that what I was really doing was, was trying to find ways to put technology and the capital resources to bring technology out into the marketplace had real benefit to not just you know a particular um, application or a particular field or a particular community, but that really served the greater good. This podcast is brought to you by Adventurize, an online platform that provides one-on-one industry mentorship and career guidance tools. 
Are you interested in connecting with experienced professionals and industry experts to learn more about your field of interest? Then Adventurize is a platform for you. Follow Adventurize on LinkedIn at A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-I-S-E or on Instagram at A-D-V-E-N-T-U-R-I-S-E. Or join our Discord community and our platform to help you find the mentors best suited to your needs. For more details, check the link in our description. When you began, you talked about how you were initially interested in aeronautical engineering and also literature. How did you discover those? In terms of the, the aeroastro you know, I, I can't tell you how I conceived this idea that I wanted to be an astronaut. Um, it just happened. <laughs> like, how do you discover your favorite color? I don't know. Uh, but, but by the time I was 14 or 15, I was really sure that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I thought that I had this dream that, that could never be realized. It was just a fantasy. So I entertained all sorts of other ideas about what else could I do and what other kinds of careers might I have. And, um, and I, I, I thought about lots of other things that I, I thought I would enjoy doing. But fortunately, my parents were very encouraging. And my dad um, had this he had lots of sayings, one of which was, if you don't ask, the answer is already no. And so he said, if you want to be an astronaut, why not try? And, you know, the worst thing is you don't get to be an astronaut. But if you don't try, you won't get to be an astronaut. <laughs> so, <laughs> And my, my mom also had always been very encouraging that, again, from her point of view, there's no guarantee that you get to do anything. So why not pursue the things that, that you are, that you really, really are excited about and that you care about and that are meaningful to you. And, and her point of view was, you know, even if you don't get to be an astronaut, you may find yourself doing things that, that you find deeply rewarding by pursuing that passion and that interest. And so it was really their encouragement that, um, that, that led me to, to go ahead and, and pursue that wildly improbable um, ambition. It must have taken quite a bit of courage to do that because at that time, not many people would be going for aeronautical engineering, right? Um, it, was a, it was a fairly small major at MIT. I think probably still is. And, and there weren't very many women at MIT. But at the time, honestly, it didn't feel to me like a, a courageous thing. It felt to me like, it felt to me more like a liberating thing. And, and maybe you felt something similar when you realized you could do something you really cared about. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was incredibly hard. And, uh, you know, there were, there were some very miserable moments. <laughs> but, but the idea that I could pursue something that I was really, really excited about, 
was was freeing and and liberating even when i was frustrated or when i you know was struggling nevertheless being able to do something that that i was really really excited about and that i had chosen because it was meaningful to me that was empowering so how did you how did you discover like com- combining technology and humanities and literature and what you learned from those things um how did that transition into a career and so first the first thing i realized was that my literary studies had given me a scope of knowledge and reference ideas that that had application to my work because it had application to the people i worked with but the the over time the other thing that i realized that was an even deeper value is that you know when you learn the engineering method or you learn the scientific method or you learn the journalistic method or you learn any other professional method of engaging the world right you learn a way to think about a problem or an idea or uh you know a phenomenon and what i found is that those two ways of thinking gave me a lot of flexibility in problem solving and in um design and in even conceiving the kinds of solutions we we might pursue um furthermore it also gave me it it gave me a a a comfort and 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 facility with uncertainty that you don't learn in engineering right in engineering we like things to be clear and defined exactly and able to say that we know the answer <laughs> right and what you learn in in literary studies is is a very different way there's so much it's not i think it's like celebrating uncertainty in a way science exactly exactly it also not only gave me different ways to think and different ways to engage with with my peers and colleagues but it also it led me to di- and so i often advise young people to do exactly what you're doing which is if you enjoy if you are really really engaged in in fields that seem like they have nothing in common don't discard or disregard that you know if you have the opportunity to pursue those parallel interests do so because not only are they connected because they're both resident in you so they are connected in you um but also you will find that that having those seemingly uh unrelated skills and experiences and perspectives will produce some unexpected benefit um actually something you um what you mentioned in the previous um discussion about how pursuing your various interests regardless of how different they may be would give you new perspectives and understanding of situations i really enjoyed that cuz i was reading um a book called the art of thinking clearly and one of that is called the confirmation bias 
Yes. And that's yes. basically about how you you can only understand in in the things you know. You can't imagine what you don't know. So you have that restricted perspective. No, you're human, so you can't know everything. Of course. But being able to pursue all these different interests, if you have that opportunity, you should definitely take that. Right. My husband and I were listening to uh, this long form radio program where the the topic was language and and specifically how we encode certain ideas in language and and how the the way you think of course determines the way you you talk or write but importantly the language that you primarily speak also very much shapes the way that you think and so in this particular program they were focused as an example on gender right and so in some languages gender is part of everything right and in other languages you don't have those same structures right and so they looked at how people thought about gender in highly gendered languages and in somewhat gendered languages and in, in minimally gendered languages. And it turns out that people actually thought quite differently. But then they also talked to people who were bilingual and multilingual, and they looked at how they thought and the way that they thought varied quite a bit. And so then they went back and they asked people, why do you think this, right? And so for the people who were monolingual, in many cases, they said, well, that's just the way it is, right? But for people who were bilingual or multilingual, they said, well, you know, in this context, it's the way that this language works and in that context. And so to your point, they had this much broader perspective of the possibility. Yeah, right? that's so interesting. I think there's different levels of depth as well in, um, even short phrases, they have completely different meanings based on what language it is and nothing ever translates, right? So I can see how people would view a situation differently based on what language they're comfortable using or um, have knowledge about. One of the things that I, I love is um, even within English, you know, in, in American English, we have, we have rain and we have drizzle and that's about it, mist, right? But if you talk to someone who's from Scotland, they have like 12 more kinds of precipitation. <laughs> and, um, and, and so it also just opens your own awareness to how much more varied and, and interesting the world is right? Because you're exposed to these very different ways of describing the world. Yes, exactly. And I feel like as a kind of byproduct of learning languages, you also have a more like more understanding of the culture there, mm. which I find to be really helpful and like opening different arenas of thought. You mentioned that you co-founded a company I'd love to hear about your entrepreneurial experiences. I think it's important to acknowledge that we have, in just a very short span of time, 
you know, really in, in, in essence, one generation, we have not just in the US, but, but, but globally, we've adopted this idea of entrepreneurship in a way that, that was never so widespread historically. And, and my experience was in some ways quite representative. Um, we started off as many founders do with uh, an idea of how we wanted to bring a certain set of scientific and, and engineering um, insights to bear on a problem that we wanted to address. We knew very little about our customers, next to nothing. Um, we knew very little about how we were actually going to make a working business out of, out of providing that solution or even what the solution would look like. Thought they were really brilliant ideas. <laughs> they turned out to be okay ideas. <laughs> um, but, but that's very typical. It's very typical to start off with a lot of ideas and not a lot of actual knowledge. And, um, and it took us about two years to even have a sufficiently well-defined and, and well-substantiated understanding of our very first customers to, to even get started, right? It really took like two years of talking to people and telling people our ideas and and getting shot down and um, making pitches and making grant applications and you know, talking to a power plant operator. And in many cases, you know, I, I look back on those conversations and I think, my God, like how many things I had completely wrong and how many things I totally didn't understand. And and that's, that's very typical, right? Like it's very typical to start off that way. And what's really, really important is to recognize that that, that is normal, right? And that you are not going to just start off with your idea and everything is just gonna happen the way you imagine. It's gonna be, you know, an overnight success. It, it really is a, a process of discovery and, and learning as fast as you possibly can and, and adapting that learning as, as quickly as, as you and your teammates are able so that you can find a solution that, that actually works. And, Above and beyond that, you know, another thing that I found is if you are doing something which is unusual or out of the ordinary, then you have a much harder path because, again, most people you talk to have never thought about what you are offering or what you're hoping to offer. Again, you know, if you are inquisitive about what they are thinking about and what their concerns are, particularly if we're talking about your customers, then you have an opportunity for a really mutually beneficial conversation. And, and that's really how to find your way forward.
We also did get a, a fair bit of pushback just because not only did our company not sound like other companies, but we didn't look like other founder teams. And I had people say quite disparaging things to me, in some cases, intentionally, explicitly biased. In other cases, they said things which I don't think they intended to be prejudiced or, or biased, but which nevertheless were. So for example, in the first case, I had people say to me, you can't possibly have done all the things on your resume. And, and what makes us think that, that you can do this, right? So explicitly biased, right? I mean, in essence, calling me a liar, right? That like I had made up the things that I had previously done. And so that therefore I, I shouldn't expect to have any credibility for what I was saying that, that we could do with this company. In the second case, I had people say to me, wow, that was a fantastic presentation. Who wrote it for you? So in the second case, they thought that they were like being encouraging, but they still didn't believe that I had done the work, right? And, and frankly, the, the founders of color I knew then and the founders of color I know now, women and men alike, face much harsher pushback. So it's important to know that going in, that first of all, you're just going to start off with this process whereby you think you have a fantastic <laughs> proposition and you think it's going to be amazing and you think everybody's going to be excited about it. And maybe after you've done a lot more work, that will be true, but it won't probably be what you thought it was at the beginning, right? And that's just for everybody. But then also it's important to know going in that in addition to doing that work of learning and, and adapting and iterating and, and finding the, the people who, who actually are your customers, you're also going to have an extra set of, of let's call them uh, prevailing resistance forces, right? So you're, you're going to have, you're going to have a lot more pushback and, and, and that's not to discourage anybody from starting, but it's just to say, you want to go in with eyes open. You, you want to understand what you're under. And a friend, a colleague actually, um, I thought put it brilliantly. She's a, a black woman. And she said, look, you're going on a long journey and you have no idea what you're going to encounter. So pack heavy. <laughs> That's really solid advice. And I love that you were realistic about it. <laughs> yeah. And, and we have a lot of that kind of mythology, right? A, a lot of this heroic mythology. And the, the fact of the matter is that company that I told you about was a really great little company. And we did a lot of things really well. And we did a lot of things really poorly. And, and we did have the first ever system the first ever emissions to biofuel system, to the best of our knowledge in the world, installed at a working power plant and a public utility power plant at that, which is a pretty high hurdle. And, and when the market imploded, 
in 2007 and 2008, and all the project finance evaporated, our little company and countless other little companies were destroyed. It was an extinction event, like the meteor hitting the earth and killing off the dinosaurs. It was a wipeout, right? Who cares how, who, who cares how, you know, empowering or, or inspiring your mission is? Who cares how much you care about it? Who cares how hard you've worked when there's no money, right? And so it's also important to not personalize your experience as an entrepreneur, either success or failure. And, and it's, it's really important to recognize that, yes, as an entrepreneur, you have a, an outsize stake and an outsize influence. You have both the responsibility and the, and the privilege of having that outsize role. However, you are by no means writing your own fate. <laughs> There are so many other factors at, at stake. I think you're quite right in, in acknowledging how difficult it is to practice, right? And again, as human beings, we, we struggle with the, the, the disconnect between theory and practice in all aspects of our lives, right? Why should it be surprising that we should struggle when it comes to founding companies, right? Um, one of my absolute favorite quotes of all time is attributed to Albert Einstein, but the quote is, in theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they are not. <laughs> Do you, um, as a mentor yourself and as a mentee, were there any um, situations which stand out to you? You know, for me, what I really enjoy and find rewarding and, and compelling about mentoring is, is actually working with people who are really trying to bring forward, again, solutions that, that have the potential to have real beneficial impact. And... And most of the time, that interaction comes in the form of me asking questions. What if we envisioned the solution differently? How, how, if we, how about if we thought about it from a different perspective? Or how could we rethink the boundary conditions? Are, are we applying constraints we don't have to apply? Sometimes what I'm trying to do with mentees is really to kind of help expand the solution space. And so sometimes I will offer, well, what if we did this? Or, or what if we tried that, right? Or could it be, right? But, but always it's, it's in that hypothetical tense, right? Um, I try really hard to never be prescriptive as a mentor because that's not my role. As a mentor, I'm not directing I'm, I'm encouraging, I'm supporting, I'm in some cases saying, I don't think that that's gonna be a fruitful pathway forward. I encourage you to drop that. That looks like a dead end. I think you have enough 
evidence at this point to know that that's not going to be worth pursuing further. Because one of the things I, I believe very strongly is that we're far more effective problem solvers when we're asking questions, right? So as a mentor, I try really hard to ask questions that open up other questions and that, that lead to more insightful, more thoughtful, more strategically productive questions. What's exciting to me about being a mentor is that I get to see and support and, and I hope help really, really capable, bright, highly motivated people go do things that I would never think to do, right? Yeah. And so for me to tell them what to do defeats the purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. <laughs> um, do you ever bring this into uh, reinventure capital as a, and and to you know investment decisions or scenarios like that, or maybe as an entrepreneur itself? Well, sure. So when we meet with founders, the really one of the very first questions I want to ask them, what is their own personal objective or aspiration? What, what will success mean to them in the context of this enterprise, right? And, and I ask that, and I sometimes even say explicitly, I ask that in context of the knowledge that these are, again, very bright, very capable people who could be doing any number of other things, right? They could be pursuing any number of other career paths. They could be pursuing any number of other endeavors within those career paths. So having chosen this, something is their guiding aspiration, right? Something is important to them. And so I want to understand what that is. And I want to understand how that success is defined in their minds. How will they know that they have achieved what, what they aspired to, right? What will that mean? What will it look like? And, and then I want to understand, you know, what are the things that they, what are the things that they care about and how are they thinking about their enterprise? How do they approach questions about their priorities or their, um, their specific uh, market strategy or their specific hiring plans or whatever it might be. I'm much more interested in understanding how they think than, than what their current model looks like, right? And of course we do wanna understand their current model. It's important to understand that, but for us, it's very much more important to understand the mindset and the assumptions underneath that model because what we, are, what we are investing in is not the current model. What we're investing in is the future of this team and their collective proposition, right? And, and then of course, we really wanna understand you know, what their own impact objectives are. Um, you know, the, the venture community, generally speaking, prefers not to talk about impact, 
And, and many of my mainstream VC peers will say, look, it's hard enough to grow a company, you know, leave that impact stuff for later, make a lot of money and you can give it away, right? Like, just don't, don't try to mix things up. Don't make it harder than it has. But one of the things that we know from experience and, and that has been substantiated is that companies that, that are organized around a guiding purpose do better. So we want to understand, for all of those reasons, we want to understand how the, the founder team thinks and, and how they approach their own priorities and their decision making and, um, and how they're thinking about the future. Because when we make an investment, we're committing to that future with them and we're committing to doing everything we can to help them be successful in achieving that future. We want to make sure that we're working towards the same future, not two different futures. <laughs> Have you had any situations where, I know, shocking situations perhaps while you were having these questions or later on in the process? So I will say that um, in my own experience prior to reInventure, I had a quite shocking discovery where um, not in that company we've already talked about, but in another uh, another instance, I thought that my co-founder and I had had really deep and, and wide-ranging conversations about our objectives and our priorities, and, and I thought that we were aligned, and I discovered a couple of years in that actually we were not, and, and that was very shocking and very painful. Um, and it happens, but, but nevertheless, when it happens to you, it's not fun. <laughs> but but we've, we've had these conversations with founders where we've asked you know, a two-person or a three-person founding team, for example, to tell us about their aspirations and their ideas of success. And it's come out in the conversation that they have very different aspirations and ideas of success, and, and they didn't know that. Have you, um, from your experience, what, what did you think was most helpful for them to have a conversation? Like it's uh, obviously it's important to have that deep discussion about what they, what their motivations are and what they expect to achieve. Um, but besides conversations. That's, that's a really important question. So, so first of all, it is absolutely vitally important to have those conversations about not just what do we aspire to and what do we care about, but what do we expect from each other? You're starting a very complex endeavor that's, that's relationship intensive, right? So it's really important to understand those expectations, but it's also really important to document them because what happens is I say what I think and you say what you think and each of us hears what we hear language thing that language thing um and the confirmation bias right because i'm excited about working with you i want to hear what i'm hoping to hear right so i will selectively hear the parts i want to hear right um so it's really important to document that and and make sure that that you actually do have the same understanding um, and, and also it's really important to 
make sure that you provide both in terms of your relationship and your conversations, opportunities to continue having that discussion and continue revisiting it, but also to give yourself, as you said earlier, the, the realization that you may need to have an out, right? And, and I will say from my own experience, the reason that, that my own experience with that co-founder was so painful was because there, there, there wasn't an out. In our co-founder agreement, there was no provision whatsoever for either of us to be able to step away. And so it, and, and our attorney, I will say, had, had structured it that way on purpose because the attorney's point of view was it should be hard. And what I learned from that is that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is to recognize that, yeah, it, it shouldn't be something that you do on a whim. Like you shouldn't just like, <laughs> you shouldn't just like dissolve a partnership or walk away from, from a, a startup on a whim, but, but you, you should have a mechanism to be able to do that in a negotiated way, as opposed to by having to like tear apart whatever you've created, right? I try to share that with other founders to help them avoid having that same experience, right? Because again, it happens, it happens. We've only had about a generation of this yeah. huge shift, right? It's a very short amount of time in human experience to even have the experiential learning, let alone to integrate it and synthesize it and pass it along, right? So it's really important that we do that. Yeah. Because for all of us to learn the same lessons individually is ridiculous. That's very true. I do have like a different perspective to offer on that. I definitely agree with you that it's things are moving so fast and developing so fast that there's no time like um, to be aware of every possible obstacle in your journey and like what mistake you could make. But like a different perspective is even if it's been a really long time and you've discovered every possible scenario that could happen, sometimes too much structure isn't the best thing either because you have a set way of thinking that, okay, you're not allowed to do this because you are going to bang your shin. You don't want to do that. And then you're afraid of veering off from the path. No, I, I think you're exactly right. And, and for my own part, I'm someone who's always drawn to how do we do something that, that hasn't been done before? And that is very much the realm of entrepreneurship, or at least the part of the realm of entrepreneurship where I practice. And, and so you want to focus on, you want to focus on making the mistakes that are specific to your endeavor and your set of discoveries and not the ones that you can avoid right? Because those are things that are just going to slow you down, right? It's never going to be free of, you know, unanticipated, unforeseen pitfalls and setbacks and, right? Like it, it, that's part of what makes it interesting and worthwhile, right? Um, it's, it, it's part of the allure and part of the appeal that, that it is a significant um, set of, of 
unknown or, or at least poorly foreseeable uh, challenges. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for being here. I wouldn't, as a last question, do you have like a character or a song or a movie or something that you closely relate to? So there are several characters I associate with very, very closely. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure if any of them would, would make a lot of sense uh, in this context. But uh, one I, I will mention is um, there's, uh, there's this recent uh, science fiction series by, I mentioned Martha Wells earlier. There's this recent science fiction series by Martha Wells called The Murderbot Diaries. And the, the main character, the protagonist is an artificial being. Um, it's uh, a, an AI with a mix of uh, mechanical and biological body parts. And it has a very, it has a very distinct voice. It, it doesn't want to be human. It doesn't aspire to be human. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and nevertheless, it has, it has some very close relationships with both AIs and humans. And um, one of the things that I find really fascinating about the fan base for these books is that um, Murderbot is very clear that Murderbot does not want to be assigned a gender. It thinks gender is creepy and sex is disgusting. And (laughs) so it's very clear that it is an it, it doesn't want to be called he or she or even they, like, I think that's just gross. (laughs) But it's really interesting to me how across the fan base for these books, so many readers identify so strongly with Murderbot that they automatically project their own gender, right? And so going back, you know, I think, resonant with much of our conversation, not only do I really love that character, but I find it really interesting as a kind of um, illumination of of people's own sort of expectations of someone they like being a reflection of them, right? So back to the idea of identity or confirmation bias, right? And, and I think this is really, it's a really fascinating thing. And it's, for me, it's just a constant reminder to be paying attention to what is not me, right? And, and what I love about Murderbot is Murderbot is not like me. Murderbot is completely delightful. I adore this character. And so, you know, as I am, looking at uh, founders and companies and, uh, and mentees and students, you know, what I'm looking for is what's really interesting that's not me, right? Yeah, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing all your experiences and stories. And I just, I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. I, I've had a great time. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.